Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and MacGyvering electronics. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 325. Uh, are we allowed to MacGyver someone's last name? Yeah, why not? Oh, not MacGyver. <laughs> Verb verbalize, <laughs> yes, yes, we are absolutely allowed to verbalize, do that, but but only word. in the intro to this podcast. Verbalize, Verbalizes. we're just great. Oh, it is the right word. Answers. Okay, that's a rule. Verbalize is a that. word, yeah. Uh, I gotta look this up now, but not in the way we just used it. <laughs> what is verb? Uh, verbalize it, to express, express in words or speaking out loud like okay so it's like not the act to of convert something like into a verb no <laughs> so we even use that word incorrectly oh never mind number three make into a verb oh okay well we're using the third definition then yeah we use the third definition there um but can so can you verbalize someone's like i guess it's not a real it's a not a real person either it's just a fictional character right yeah for, yeah well i mean we just did it and i'm I, I hope everyone understands what we mean by that what macgyvering electronics oh i, I, I think s- actually that's that's sort of now we're getting all kinds of weird but that's sort of one of the the nice things about the english language is you can really mess up stuff and it's still understandable right like even though that's technically wrong like it's uh it's something where we can um uh, you can just apply the rules in your head and be like, okay, well, I get what's going on. Apparently, Oxford Languages has MacGyvering in it. Okay, well then, you know what? All that's been wrong isn't our language. It's just been you and me this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, all right, so first topic of today. Uh, I got a email, I think yesterday, maybe it was this morning, uh, from Keystone, they they say now I I sign up for their newsletter. I think it's like once a month. There's a newsletter bleh, newsletter that Keystone comes out with, and uh, it, it's a really weird newsletter because a lot of times I'm like I've seen that part, I've seen that part, I've seen that part. Um, but this was a part I've never seen before, at least from Keystone, and uh, it is a SMT uh, twenty thirty two coin cell holder. But like countersunk, I don't know what the term is for these kind of parts because it's not countersunk. Embedded, embedded. But that means other things in our industry. <laughs> I couldn't so, come up with what a term for this kind of part is. It's a part where, because to me, countersunk is like it's like in the material, and this is in material, but it goes all the way through the material. So basically, it's a part that is like halfway in the material counterboard like, down in counterboard maybe yeah but basically this is like a, a smt holder for a coin cell that you route out like a big opening and this sits halfway through so like half the part is poking out the back side of the board yeah so, so on on the, the this this shape that you route out of your board you put terminals on sides of the shape and then it yeah. solders directly to that yeah so basically the entire coin cell is held up by these terminals yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps perhaps not the most robust situation. But no. if, if if your board needs to be as thin as possible and hold a 2032 cell, this is probably your best bet. 
Yeah, that's definitely the best bet. Because there's um, USB connectors that are like this, that are like half sunk through the board. Mm-hmm. Um, what other parts are... Like, uh, have you ever use, even used parts like this before? Uh, not directly like this, but something that comes to mind is we use a lot of the LTST style um, reverse mount LEDs where the lens itself uh. goes into a hole. So you, you mount it from the back side of the board and uh, the lens fits inside the hole. It's th- these LEDs are fantastic because they're inexpensive. They're 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 actually really efficient. Um, we've been able to reduce the current draw on a lot of our products. And what's nice about these LEDs is since they're reverse mount, most of the time with our modules and our assemblies, we're able to replace LEDs if need to be very easily because you just pop it off the back, throw a new one in, and it's good to go. Hmm. So you have used parts like this before. I, I've used. I don't think I've used any of those parts before. Um, I took a a sixteen by two character display though, mm. and then routed out where the bezel part of the board, like the, where the actual screen is, and then was able to basically mount the screen backwards into the board to kind of reduce the height and um, basically make assembly better. Um, so you didn't have to use like standoffs or whatever. For the uh, for the bosses, the screw bosses. Um, so you remember Octoprober, right, Stephen? Oh yeah, that's how I mounted the the screen on it. And so the screen's actually like directly soldered to the to the board, and not with like a header and like standoffs and stuff like that. Reduce makes it thinner, but also just reduces the cost. Um, of assembling with a, like a 16 by two character display, even though like after that, I found some character displays that, uh, actually are designed for more like that. They like <laughs> for doing what you did with, yeah. yeah, yeah, basically, um, that company, I wonder if that company's still around is by display still around. Oh, I used them just like two years ago. I think they're still around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the website's way different now though. Oh, that's cool. Um, their website was not the best, in my opinion. It was a little difficult to navigate. Yeah. Apparently, they sell a lot of bigger, like, TFT-style displays now. Hmm. I wonder if they still got those really cool, old, like, 16 by 2 character displays that were... Um, ooh. FPC-style 16 by 2 character displays? Yes, please. <laughs> those are cool. Yeah, okay, I like those a lot. Because you can just attach those to your board with some, like, double-sided sticky foam. Oh, that's cool. Hmm. Hey, I'm going to have to put that in the uh, in the show notes. So I've got a cool example here of me brute-forcing uh, a situation like uh, <clears throat> this uh, coin cell battery thing. So on, uh, on a project I'm working on right now, I'm actually using 24 millimeter pots like the good old fashioned alpha big pots. And uh, I ended up making a footprint where the pots, it, they're, 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 uh, they're, what is it? Solder pad type, but I, but I made a, uh, a through hole footprint for them where the actual body of the, the pot fits inside of a board and you can solder to the body of it such that you can ground out the body of the pot and just do 24 millimeter pots on a regular PCB. And mainly the reason I did that is because these are readily available. These, you can find these pots mm-hmm. anywhere. 
in every value, every taper, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, like, honest-to-God PCB mount ones are much harder to get. Much harder, and they typically, like, go out of stock, like, right when you need them. Yep, yep, yep. So instead yeah. of, instead of like, trying to source the right pots, I just made a custom footprint that uh, solves all the problems. So it kind of does that. Like, the actual, the, the pot is embedded in the, the board yeah. itself. It's like halfway, the body's halfway embedded into it. It's also nice, too, because it adds a ton of rigidity to the to the board. And like I said, I, uh, I'm able to connect the body of the pot to my chassis ground, so I can actually ground out things, and uh, hopefully that adds to uh, lower noise. So I kind of like this, uh, the the routing of parts and like syncing them into a board to uh, make lower profile. That's yeah. that's pretty cool that there's like a production part that is intended to be that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I've actually never used any parts that are like besides like making a character display kind of do it, but um, I guess design considerations if you're using parts like that. Cause like I'm looking at the Keystone one, and they've got like a recommended like cutout mm -hmm. um, for the board, uh, so this part could sink into it. And when you look at it, it's got a lot of lot of play in it. Like the tolerance is pretty wide. Um, so I guess what you'd have to do is basically look at your PCB manufacturer. You actually you as a electrical engineer, you're actually going to have to do mechanical engineering for tolerances. To make your opening big enough. Oh, we, I've never met an electrical engineer that doesn't have to do mechanical stuff. Well, that, that's true, but most most board designers, they just select like, you know, five mil, five mil, five mil traces, and then that handles the tolerances. You're like, you don't actually have to go and calculate tolerances. Right. right. For like physical tolerances, right? Um, you might have to do electrical tolerances, but physical tolerances, like, you don't have to really worry about. But in this case, you are going to have to worry about because you have to look at the part, like, diagram, know what its tolerances are, and then you have to go find your board house, what its tolerances are on route outs, basically, cutouts in your board, and then merge those two together and make sure you don't have any uh, problems. Yeah. So... And then I was trying to think of like a possibly assembly issues. And I don't think. I guess maybe if your PCB needed like to be on a carrier, there could be problems. Like you'd need a deeper, like you'd need a cutout on your carrier for it. Um, this is available on tape and reel, which is nice. Oh, so you, you can pick and place it. You can pick and place it, but it's pretty big. What is it? It is thirty-three millimeters. From yeah, it's end like an, to end. It's an inch and a quarter or something like that. Yeah, 1.3 inches. So, yeah, it's big. Uh, so you, your your CM would have to have a real big enough or a feeder slot big enough to be able to handle that. Yeah. Like a 40 millimeter reel or whatever. Oh, assembly issue. So you have to put it on like, let's just say like on your in your reflow. It can't go on your chain bed. It's got to go on your rails. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it extends beneath the board, right? Because it extends beneath. Right. And so, um, depending on how big and heavy your board is, that might be a problem. Usually, you know, if you have like a really heavy board that's only one sided, you just run it on the, the, the reflow. Uh, 
got like a conveyor belt in there. Oh, yeah. You yeah, just yeah. run it on that and you don't have to worry about it. But if you have one of these parts and your board's heavy, you're going to have to get a carrier for sure. Right. Or or if you're, you know, your board has rails, it, it rides on the pin chain. Yeah. yeah. Well, if it's heavy, you can't do that because it'll bow. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm lucky because almost all of our PCBs have a fixed Y uh, dimension. Mm-hmm. And so... Like and we we almost oh ra- like, like your racks and and stop yeah 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 right? so so we rarely <laughs> even have to move the rails on our oven because it's almost always fixed like yeah. we only have so to how- move them when we're uh, dealing with like customer stuff yeah I mean at MacRab what we do is I I basically designed a a a carrier right that has a sliding bar mm-hmm. so we never have to adjust our our oven because this carrier is like you know, 17 inches wide or whatever. And it fits any panel that you put in. That's right. It has like carrier. alignment pins to holes in the rails on the um, yeah. panels, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, another thing about this part that I'm looking at now. Uh, so the major, not the majority, virtually 100% of the mechanical rigidity of this is the solder joint to the pads, uh, mm-hmm. which looks fairly substantial. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of chunky uh, pieces, so you know, I I think it would be able to withstand a little bit of force on it. But I'm almost wondering if, since you've already routed out a board, wouldn't it be nice if it had like interlocking fingers that would like clip it down in to the mm. board? Although, come to think about it, it wouldn't be pick and place. Then you wouldn't be, like because because yeah. the pick and place typically doesn't actually exert a significant significant amount of down force. It usually just like gracefully places it. In, uh, puts parts in place it depends i mean yeah, you can sure. but uh i don't think that's very typical so it would be nice if this part could like almost like uh, not almost but if it had like fingers that would snap into the board snap and in. hold it in place that would be better than relying 100 percent on your pads for rigidity well i was actually thinking on a different note is it only has two tabs and they're on like far ends mm. I want to know, like, how much vibration can that take? Mm, yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah, they could they to... could add extra pads that are not connected to anything for just like uh, you know on on every cardinal direction. That yeah, might cardinal direction. That. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. I, I, someone should someone should do a vibration test with that part and see how long it will last for. Well, and something also to consider, like, at your CM, most CMs don't don't do this but i've certainly seen them before where you know you have a bin of assemblies that are coming off of the pick and place or even getting transferred to an operator or something where they've rested the boards up against each other now you Mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that they should be supported somehow or they should be in antistatic bags or bubble bags or something of that sort but i've certainly seen it before where it's just components on components and if this is the you know your largest component on the bottom side of your board and you stack your boards incorrectly, then it could put a significant amount of force on this part and in turn its pads. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is just a additional thing to think about because it's a coin cell holder is if you have like testing or anything like that, that requires putting the coin cell in, you shouldn't be putting, let's say your part of your assembly is putting a coin cell in it. It needs to be going into something that's not conductive afterwards. Um, 
where I'm getting at with that is because usually a CM will bag it, will put it into an ESD bag. Well, that ESD bag is conductive on the inside and will draw off your battery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've definitely had you know batteries fail tests because they were stored in ESD bags, like in, on the PCB. And it doesn't take much to like, you know, you're trying to measure if a battery is that like fully charged versus like you know, 90 or 80%. And uh, so that's one thing to think about, basically like the process of your product. Like if your CM's doing like the full box build, you don't have to worry about it, right? Because it's never going to go in the ESD bag. But if, you're, if your CM is going, hey, we're, we got to install these coin cells to test it, and then we're boxing it up to send to like somewhere else for assembly or whatever, they're going to put it in the ESD bags and that's going to drain those batteries. So... Um, either pop either the battery out, f- pop the battery out, or figuring out something in your test fixture to apply bat- voltage there, and not be a battery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of got, got you, the 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 uh, the engineers on site. They're they're starting to sweat because it's like, do I put something non-conductive on the board before putting it in the bag? And then it's yeah. like, oh, ESD problems, because that's usually like styrofoam or something of that sort. Yes. Yeah, so you're like completely de- defeating the purpose. Yeah. Um, oh, man. One thing I saw was, um, oh, man, it was a board. It had a battery on it, and then it had a header that was connected. One was connected to the ground, and one was connected to 3.3 volts or like 3 volts. I think it was just 3-volt rail. Um, and it was, no, it was a 3.43 volt rail anyways. Uh, but there was a, a, um, a chip on there doing the battery monitoring for like the lithium battery, like it had a coin cell. And, um, I think it was an RTC chip actually that had a built in battery backup, like circuit built in and, and there would be leakage. Uh, so if there was no power, that chip would have leakage onto the rail. That's kind of normal through like ESD and internal diodes and stuff. So it had some leakage there. Typically not a really a big problem because your board's just sitting there. But um, it had pin headers. And usually uh, when you ship boards, you have to put a little piece of foam on the headers or the headers will break through the bags and basically cause damage. And then you can get ESD through the bag. Um, well, that foam is also conductive, yeah. but usually actually even, even more of a problem because it's like directly contacting the, the terminals at this point. Right. Right. And, uh, I think that drained like almost every single battery in that batch. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just weird stuff that you start man, after you've been building stuff for like nine years, like from hundreds maybe even a thousand plus at this point customers like man you just start to see weird edge cases like that oh yeah 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 so basically if it's going if it, you have to long-term store a, a a a board that has to go into like esd or get on foam or something take those batteries out yeah or figure out a way that it gets shipped as an assembly oh yeah shipped as assembly yeah yeah but it's probably easiest to just not do the battery thing. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the best thing is during testing, if you need a test, if like 
the voltage comes through on like your battery backup, have your fixture apply power there instead of putting the battery in. That's usually the fastest option and doesn't have this problem. So you want to you make your CM even happier? Uh, make it such that there's like a test connector that they plug in that applies oh. the power and things. So you don't have to like clip into battery leads or anything like like make a dedicated this is the test connection header. Yeah. Oh, just pogo pins that your thing hooks up to. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Something of that sort. Yeah. 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 If you don't want to populate a, a header or some kind of connector, then pogo pins. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any other cool parts? I don't think so. This week's even? No. I, I mean, I've seen, I've been looking at parts all week long, but uh, I'm sure I have some, but let's just move on. Um, okay. <clears throat> So I found a I found a, an interesting uh, question on the uh, uh, electrical engineering subreddit that just asked how do I branch into electrical engineering, and what's what's fun about this or interesting is that the the person asking about this who is a computer engineer but wants to become more of like a traditional double E so sort of jack of all trades in that sense uh, in terms of like the uh, the electronics side of engineering but um the the i I've, i'd love to kind of talk about what that the, what that actually looks like because one of the th- things that this person was mentioning was is it uh is it worthwhile to get a bunch of certifications in electrical engineering and that made the, that got me thinking like what what kind of certifications are there even for electrical engineering uh and i'm sure there's plenty but I'm not incredibly aware of uh, a lot of them. And and certifications yeah. in general sort of, to me, scream like big business, like many, many thousands of, of people working for a company. And traditionally, I've worked for smaller businesses where uh, certifications are less, I don't know, required or even known mm-hmm. about. So I'm curious yeah. if you know of any double E certifications. Like... Most certifications I think about are not even really things that individuals get. Companies get certified, like right. ISO and that kind of stuff. Um, and when you say certifications, what my mind jumps to is like IT. Mm. Um, IT certifications and that kind of stuff. And so Stephen has his link here from Zipia or whatever. Um, yeah, uh, Zippy. I, I so I went. I went to Google and just typed in electrical engineering certifications just to see what oh is out there. It's also behind a subscription wall. Uh, that's yeah, funny. sorry about that. I the first time I clicked on it, it let me go to it, and then the second time, it's like, well, you need to pay or whatever. But but regardless, this this uh, list of certifications, it's like top twelve best electrical engineering certifications. I started looking through it, and almost all of them are not directly electrical engineering related or even yeah they're not even related to electrical engineering at all and most of them are it's for like tools like getting certified for autocad yeah and i'm like sure you can get certified to use your eda tool i guess um why maybe is a question (laughs) for that yeah um i guess if you were job hunting those look good for what was it? Uh, the HR pit of doom. <laughs> yes, I think that's what we called it. Um, yeah. It's very good to get past that. 
for sure. Um, that, uh, yeah, guaranteed that helps. Because you can say, I have these certifications, which means I have... It's like it's like when you go to college and you have that piece of paper that says, I graduated four years with a BS at blah, 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 blah. Um, it's the same thing, right? It's a piece of paper that says, I took this class and they say I know this stuff now. Mm -hmm. So it helps definitely for job searching. I would say if you're at your job, it's not really worth too much. Unless like it's a actually you're talking about a really big company that might have pay increases just written down for like if for these certain service like if if someone has this certification they get this much amount of money, right? Right. I know those right. kind of organizations do exist. Um, never had to work for one, thankfully, but uh, those do exist. So I, that's definitely where it would be from. I would say as. I just can't think of because I does I triple E have any certifications for people to take? You know, I I know so little about I triple E that uh, I, I I wouldn't be able to answer that. Okay, so IPC is the one I think that is probably the the yes. most related to electrical engineering. Although in terms of hardware, for sure. In terms of hardware, uh, but I think IPC hits home for you and I the most just because we deal with IPC style stuff, right? Manufacturing yeah. of electronic assemblies. IPC. I really do think that would be useful for just, if you were just doing board layout. Mm -hmm. That's, in my opinion, really important too. Yeah, it does allow you to think more about the manufacturing process because that's what it is. Um. DJ in chat mentions you have uh, the PE professional engineering uh, stuff, which is yes, that is a certification by your state, mm -hmm. uh, United States uh, state. Um, I think other countries have similar things. Um, it's very interesting to think of that uh, at PE is is a professional engineering is like state by state. Mm hmm. Which is very interesting to think of. I don't think people really know that. You know, you know, I've talked about PE just a little bit uh, on the podcast. N neither one of us are are PEs. And uh, did you even take your FE exam? I did not. Yeah, not myself as well. And I've never even worked at a business that I could even pursue my PE because you have to train under a PE. Yes. Uh, so I, I think well, there, if, no, uh, at least in Texas, you have to train under one, which is like, okay, how did the first one ever get trained then? <laughs> and then number two or two, you have to have, I want to say it's four years of engineering notebooks and you have to submit them to a committee. I, th I thought it was both in Texas. No, I, you, no, you don't have to do both. Uh, I was always told that basically it was, a, it was a PE stamps off on you if uh, um, if you train under one. Yeah, still, I could be like, wrong though. I'm pretty sure that it's two separate things. Two yeah, separate I, it's, I think it'd be fun to to look at, uh, but um, from what, what, what I've state? always been told that it's that you have to do both. Basically, you have to keep your journal effectively, and you have to train under a PE for four years, and then take your PE exam. Which yes. Oh, yeah. Is, the exam is kind of, too. Kind of brutal. But no, but, like, I'm pretty I sure it's. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's and <laughs> slash or. Um, what state has the easiest? 
I'm not sure. I've never really Florida. looked into it because I, well, I spoke to some people in college and uh, they – I was just basically said like it's really not worth it for a double E unless you you know it's worth it like if you know you need it you need it if not mm-hmm. like it is it really worth the eight hour exam of an FE uh, and I suppose you know I don't want to discourage people from taking your FE exam which is the fundamentals of engineering kind of thing and in fact at the end of college is probably the absolute best time to take it yeah or like during college like maybe your senior year. Right. Go. Actually, I, I um, if I recall at UT University of Texas, there was a class that you could take that was like basically studying to take the FE. Mm, yeah. Um, the fundamentals are the fundamentals of engineering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At A and M, almost everyone I know took their FE exam after they had already graduated, but like it was like finals week. And then it was a week and a half later or something like that. They went and took the FE. Uh, so it was like right after college. Yeah. And I talked to some people about it. It was like, is this a good idea for me to go and do? And, you know, looking back, it's one of those things where it's like, I could have probably spent the, I don't know, hundred or $200 it was to get it and just take the exam. And then you're just done with it. And, and then you can go and do it if you want. But I've never had a situation where I needed it. And every professional professional engineer, I, I, I don't mean an actual PE, every engineer that is a professional uh, I've talked to who doesn't have it, they're like, it's never hindered me. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it, but uh, it feels like that's another one of those things where it's like a really big business is the kind of place where they could afford to say, like, we must have this. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is in line with the... Uh with the whole idea of uh, finding, like, go live in the state where it's, like, the easiest to get a PE. Yeah. Um, is, I wonder if there are companies out there that are, like, PE farms. Oh. Or, like, <laughs> you go work there for four years and yeah. you get a PE. Uh, yeah, big companies, right? <laughs> yeah, but no, like, that's, like, they're... I, I, I'm looking at it as, like, you... So... Uh, Steven and I were both in the Boy Scouts, um, and I'm an Eagle Scout, but there's def I don't know if Steven is or not. Um, Eagle Scout? Yeah. No, I'm an Eagle. Oh, you're an Eagle too? Okay. Yeah. I think we've had that discussion before, but yeah. I just couldn't remember. Anyways, but there was definitely like scout troops out there that were Eagle Farms. Yep. Like every single person that went through it that made it through the, you know, seven eight years of boy scouts got an eagle scout like or was what became eagle like they were farms right whereas like in my scout troop i was like the only person that got eagle for like two three years right? yep yep it was um, it was small- rare in mine too I, I was actually aware of a boy scout troop in my uh community where they had a rule that if you were signing up you actually signed a document saying i'm going to get eagle uh, wow. they were, they were a farm, but like they could pull that out and be like, this was your intent. Why are you not getting Eagle kind of thing? Which I think yeah. is really crappy because yeah, I think that's... with Boy Scouts, I think it's up to the, I think it's up to the kid to go and get it. Yeah, uh, for sure. Well, I mean, that's the entire point. Yeah, it's... exactly. Exactly. But, but there's, it... trust me, I, I saw a bunch of other troops where it was like very much parents getting Eagle for their kid. Yeah, no, for sure. They're, they're Eagle farms. Yeah. Um, 
so that's that's why I brought it up because I immediately thought of that. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's PE farm companies where like you go work, <laughs> you go work for a a. I bet you it's probably more common in like civil engineering where you like almost everyone. If you're going to be a good civil engineer, you yeah, need you got to stamp a, that that you got to stamp stuff. Design. Um, I think that's probably more important in that industry. So that's it's probably like. If you if you're a new civil engineer, you go work for a company and you're like under a PE and there's like a program to get you a PE eventually. Totally. Maybe that farm might not be the right term for that, but it reminded me of the Eagle Scout thing. Well, uh, and Scouts. and you, you know the thing about that that's nice. Like you can probably uh, expect at least four years out of that employee if they if they do that, right? Oh, yeah. So it's a good Man, it's that's, good retention. That's interesting to think about because then you don't have to worry about like is this person going to be around, you know, and so can I sink a lot of training into them, that kind of stuff. Right, right, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. That's they might interesting bolt after dynamic. four years, they'll get the stamp and whoop. Yeah, that, but that's a very interesting dynamic I didn't even think about. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm sure that's unintentional, but uh, but at the same oh, time, yeah, like, sure. I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if companies rely on that, being like, hey, yeah. we'll invest in you, but we're expecting four years, so yeah, at least. Well, they don't have to say that part because they just know that they have to stick around if they're going to be successful in that industry. Right. Even even if you hate that job, like you might stick it out for four years to get the yeah the PE. Yeah. Interesting. But so, how do you branch into electrical engineering? So, yeah. Back to back to the original. Back to question. the actual original question <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. What what is what is the method of branching into electrical engineering? I Man, honestly, I just certifications got... is not it. I don't think. Yeah, certifications is not it. Um, it just start building electronic. Like if it, depending on if, if it's actually hardware, like start building electronics. Like especially if this person has a computer engineering background, like Arduino. Yeah. Start blinking some LEDs. And it's not building, a huge then, stretch to jump between those two. They're yeah, so, so adjacent. Like, yeah, because. Because you already know how to code at that point. You should be able to code. And code an Arduino to blink an LED. Like, do that. Mm. Maybe play with some shields. Like, get a motor controller shield or whatever. Stuff like that. Something inexpensive. Stuff to do. And then build your own custom shield for it. That would be, like, the first step. And I think also the person asking this question was interested in getting their master's in double E when they have their undergrad, uh, their their bachelor's in CE. Uh, and so at that oh. point, at that point, that's go, completely different kind of territory, though. Well, sort of, yeah. So at that point, like, there's there's a lot of overlap between EE and CE. In fact, it's it, there's in, so in much ma- overlap that at my, yeah. At, at my college, they started calling the whole program. Uh, what electrical and computer engineering like they just yeah. mashed them together at, at ut it is actually my degree is ece right. it's not ee right so well um, and and so what i would do is go look at where that overlap is look at what classes are different and which classes would be necessary uh, f- to get your uh, bachelor's in ee and then figure out what uh like is that even reasonable maybe it's only like two classes and that gets you your double e uh, yeah. and I'd be willing to pay for a semester if, like, that's all it took to be then be able to go and get your master's. 
I like uh, in, in chat here, Mobius says, uh, pick a project, think about how you do it as a CE, and then do it in discrete logic. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, Honestly, that's really challenging half the time. Yeah. It depends on how, how big of a project it is. Well, if you're used to CE and you're used to being able to do virtually anything you want and then you have to jump over and do it in digital logic or analog like your your boundaries of capabilities shrink incredibly so like mm -hmm. actually that's such a good exercise because uh having unlimited resources of a computer i'm saying unlimited virtually unlimited versus like having to worry about every single part doing a thing is a really great exercise and and it's even fun to go beyond that because uh, the next level is saying like, okay, cool. Can you accomplish that? And then can you accomplish that at a price point? Can you do that mm -hmm. for under $10 or something? I don't know. Give yourself yeah, yeah. some targets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you're Put talking double e. cap on you. <laughs> well, you're talking double E design and manufacturing at that point. There's a lot of other mm -hmm. versions of double E. That, that, that actually, okay, so that brings up another thing. Parker and I usually ha take the perspective of we're making hardware either for you or for ourselves. And so we speak to that a lot. But double E's do a ton more than that. You know, you have power, you have communications, you have semiconductor physics, you have all these other branches of. Yeah, yeah actually, one thing is like a CE would probably be really good at doing DSP work. Yeah. Especially the programming side of DSP, even though it's like now you're talking about custom hardware in terms of like a uh, uh, like for example like a C6000 DSP microcontroller right for, mm -hmm. from TI mm -hmm. just an example but like because that kind of hardware doesn't exist inside of a computer at all mm. like a, a normal computer yeah um, right. so learning a new piece of hardware that you're going to write firmware for to do High, basically high speed communication basically you're whole doing like you know a whole ram structure and stuff is all weird and fun right um man that might be the way to go too is like hey do uh getting like radio and stuff like that or, or high speed transmission communication because then you start dealing with dsps which are much closer to a ce skill set yeah. Uh, for example, you know, even programming um, PLCs, that's it's different, but still adjacent. Uh, mm -hmm. You're still telling a box to do uh, certain things when triggers happen. So that's that's something to consider. At the same time, get like an FPGA development board and start toying around with that. Uh, a lot. I can tell you from just random job searches around Colorado, like 90 percent and I'm I don't know that number, but it feels that way. Like there's a lot of high tech, like military and, and medical out here. And there's so many jobs where it's like FPGA designer in the title. Uh, mm. There's just a lot of that. So, you know, if that interests you, if you want to do the high tech stuff, start looking at high speed FPGAs and all that jazz. Yeah. It really depends on what sector of electrical engineering you want to do. Yeah. But I think you're right. Like, Pick some projects, do those, and that will tell you. You'll at least teach yourself. Do I like what that I'm doing? That kind of or stuff. Not? Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's the when you're in school for electrical engineering. When you get to like your end of sophomore, beginning of junior year, that's when you start taking these weird classes that are trying to like break your brain open in terms of like theory. 
but it's trying to looking back on it it's a good thing because you start to find stuff that you're good at and stuff you're not good at and you start to gravitate towards those things you're good at and you're like end of junior year and then your senior year like i was really good at embedded so i went to embedded stuff and then i was good at dsp so i did a dsp whereas like i was not good at solid state design so i did not do that i was not very good at filters did not do filters right, right. <laughs> but I f you figured all that out at kind of like really halfway through your your college right so you start to figure out what you're actually <laughs> at least that's it, so weird to think about because all most all other engineering is much more focused and and scope hmm. um whereas logical engineering there's like man i want to say hundreds of different kind of uh, logical engineers out there or different um, uh, what's the right word for it? Area of study. Disciplines. Discipline. That's that, That's the better word for it. Disciplines. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting logical engineering is very interesting. So. But yeah, that's midway through is when you try to figure out what or you start to figure out what discipline you're going to be good at. Well, you're you're kind of forced to because the college typically is like, okay, you have to start picking classes towards a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because you start out, everyone takes like the fundamental stuff. Right. They're like the freshman, all every freshman is taking like the same electrical engineering classes. And sophomore first beginning of sophomore year, it's kind of the same thing. It's like a recap. Make sure you retained everything over your first summer, right? <laughs> and then you start jumping into the big meaty you know theory topics and that's when you're like okay i don't get any of this stuff but i get this stuff and so you start gravitating towards that right so at least that was just my experience so and if you're good at all of it great that's awesome <laughs> yeah good for <laughs> you i was not <laughs> yeah um you got anything else to add to how do I branch into electrical engineering? I mean, probably, but also no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, next topic. This is also a Reddit question, but on Ask Electronics. And I thought it was, it's a perfect topic for this, this podcast. Is there a MacGyver way to measure voltage without a multimeter? And I'm like, oh, I love this question a lot. Um, I so this is how I would do it is the first thing you do is you have to figure out if it, whatever it is is dangerous to you okay <laughs> that's the always the first thing right well how do you do that just touch it and say ow <laughs> no no because that's what happens in Jurassic Park right the kids like climbing the electrical fence and it goes off and freaking like flies off of it um no how much of an air gap will it spark across? Oh, now you're talking about some serious voltage. <laughs> well, no, you just take the two wires and then bring them really close together. And because you can do that and then measure by that. holding the insulation, right? Yeah. So you don't actually have to expose yourself to the high voltage. And if, if basically they only spark at like right when they get really close together, probably don't have to worry about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because because the dielectric strength of air is about three thousand volts per millimeter. 
So, yeah, uh, like to measure the uh, if it's a millimeter and it arcs, it's about three k. <laughs> oh, this is not a good plan then. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that depends on a lot of different things. Like okay, if you're on a how tropical strong the spark is then? <laughs> what color the spark is? <laughs> Did it vaporize the the, the wire? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So if it's dusty or if it's humid, that changes things so it does it does change it yeah uh, so that's not a real, actually a really good metric uh method then well okay um, so so the slack channel is just saying lick it and uh depending on how bad it hurts that's your voltage check no no i like your idea i like the arcing thing is actually a really a, a, it's good and technically everything arcs right like it, it does it does yeah. yeah i mean that's how you're basically that's where your high impedance is going to happen so that's where all your voltage potential is going to want to jump across. Um, that's what I was saying is how strong it is, which is subjective, of course, um, of that arc would be. You can be fairly... Don't, do not take my advice. Fairly confident. <laughs> At least I would be. Um or just knowing where the wires are coming from, because like if you're in a house, you definitely know they're going to be 120 or 240 volt, and that's not going to be any fun for anyone to touch. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. I'm not a big fan of licking batteries. Like for some reason, everyone in chat is like, "Lick the battery" or "Lick the <laughs> wires." It's like, no, that's the worst idea ever. I would say. Um. Okay, I so I, I've got a thought on this, and and here's here's so we're gonna we're gonna totally MacGyver this, like assuming MacGyver is uh like okay, the, so, the tools so, are available. So MacGyver actually has to go measure a voltage, then. Yeah, yeah. So he so, needs to actually find the voltage of something without well, a multimeter or or measuring equipment. But but let's let's assume just for this uh, this question that MacGyver is an electrical engineer and went to electrical. Go engineering school so hmm. that and what that will uh, give the uh macgyver is the electrostatic force equation which is k times q1 times q2 yep. divided by d squared um so i think the best situation would be to make an electroscope which basically if we can assume that the, that there is a paper clip and like fishing line available then you can ground out the paper clip to attempt your best like bury it in the ground for a little bit and make sure it's at zero volt potential as much as possible and then suspend the paper clip by that fishing uh line oh and no, measure how far it to like a pipe sure yeah yeah because macgyver always macgyvers in like a warehouse yeah. there's always like pipes and stuff so you can just ground to that right right yeah. and then and then measure the deflection of the paper clip and calculate the force based off of that and then and you can get basically the charge difference between them and then you could back calculate voltage oh i like that idea i think that's I, and I, and basically that's a uh, like uh, maybe you've seen it before uh now now the, i think the most optimal situation is to have a vacuum bolt on a chamber uh, but like the gold leaf thing uh where you apply oh, charge yeah, to yeah. it and two gold leaf uh plates repel each other repel uh, yeah I, I think that's that. sort of like an original voltmeter, in a way. Yeah. Um, going off your your first idea is 
you could make an electromagnet, mm. right, and then figure out how much weight it can hold. <coughs> I feel like, I mean, yes, absolutely. That would be that, like that might super be easier to, <laughs> That might be easier to do than uh, measuring deflection or something, yeah. depending on what tools you or what items you have. Can can we measure voltage with bubble gum? Hmm. If you I guess need bubble gum to hold the string up, if you had wait wait wait, if you had a known like length of wire and you knew its resistance, could you not attach it to your random voltage? And somehow calculate the current through it based off of how much temperature rises. <laughs> how long it... Wait, if you had a known amount of water, could you not put that in the water and then calculate or time how long it takes that water to boil and then back calculate how much energy or just, that was? Or just temperature rise, yeah. Sure, yeah, just temperature rise. Yeah, so, you, that that'd be a way to do it. That'd be a way to do. It. Now we're adding a whole bunch of like extra variables into this. Well, no, that's how we always did things in the show, though. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, if you knew if you knew the mass of water you had and your the total amount of water, and you didn't know your voltage, but you knew the resistance of your wire, you could calculate how long it took to raise a, a particular amount of water by however much. So you could find out how much energy you put into the wire, and then you, you could back calculate the voltage that was applied to it that's making the assumption that that voltage doesn't change but uh but yeah if you had like a constant voltage source mm -hmm. or your mystery voltage i think the problem with a lot of these ideas is we're assuming you don't have a multimeter but you have other ways to precisely <laughs> measure things right 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 <laughs> well but but that that is the uh i guess Honestly, the, deflection the deflection thing, thing is probably the easiest easiest because you can probably actually get away with a with like a tape measure and that would get you kind of close i would I, I actually i think you that. could probably uh, i i'm i'm just guessing here but you could probably like even just make your own measurement stick and make like three four five triangles or using geometry you could create like your own protractor effectively that this thing would go through and then you could measure angles based off of that uh, using whatever units you want that you've created uh -huh. and then yeah, back calculate it. voltage based off of that. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we're just talking about, you know, you're on an, a desert island and you need to calculate voltage. <laughs> voltage, but you need a very precise, like, the radio you need to turn on to talk, like... Gilligan is there with his coconut radio, but it needs to precisely <laughs> his calibrated coconut radio. <laughs> yeah, it, but precise. He's calculated out that he needs eighteen point nine three volts. Yep. So he yep. needs to make sure he's at that voltage. Yeah. And MacGyver's like, I can do it. I got this. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got a paper clip and a bubble gum wrapper, and yeah, there you go. You just measure the deflection between the two. Yeah. <laughs> That might be the easy, especially given with not a lot of precise ways of measuring. That might be the best way. I think, think electromagnetic so. would work too. Um, that could possibly work. Well, that depends because you might need a lot of magnet wire to make that work. But I guess it just depends what you have on hand. Hmm. Yeah. 
if if you had wait if you had a coil say okay so uh, let's think about this if you had a voltage just somewhere i don't know like it's on a a thing like a fork yeah we, have, we also have to voltage, assume so, I don't that know. this voltage doesn't drop at all well we're doing but what like, i'm wondering is it, okay so if you have a static voltage then there's a static e field right and if you had a coil near it you could move the coil and induce a current in the coil could you somehow back calculate based off of that I mean, the answer is probably yes, but now we're starting to get into Yeah, but how accurately can you do that? Not That's really. No, yeah, not very yeah. well. I think the trick is how close... What's the best method to get a close enough or an accurate enough uh, measurement? Mm, okay, wait, wait, wait. I remember actually in college, there was a way... Uh, I, I wasn't part of this team, but there was a team that made a radio based off of a rusty razor blade... Uh, a coat hanger and like an ear. Oh, a crystal radio. Yeah, effectively, they use the razor blade as a diode. So if mm -hmm. you if you were okay with having your uh, measuring in quantized diode section, so let's say 0.7 volts. I I doubt a rusty razor blade is 0.7, but let's just pretend like it is. If you could stack those rusty razor blades on them, then you could be accurate to within one rusty blade drop, right? Yeah, no, so, that's that, uh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah, that yeah. idea. I wonder mm. what is a voltage drop across a rusty razor blade, and what what was it rubbed on? Was it graphite? I don't remember. I'm trying to remember how I think that's correct. Hmm. I do like. Uh, I'm starting to look at some of the answers on here. But I like coworkers' fingers. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty similar to the slack channel just saying lick it and yeah find just lick out. it yeah um i i would think the problem with the diode thing is you know if it's a lot of voltage you are gonna immediately blow it yeah um, i guess that's the whole point you don't know what the yeah, voltage is so it could be lethal it could be nothing yeah, so I think doing an arc test is your first step, right? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, because if it arcs over anything like visible distance, you know it's a ton of voltage. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like you got to pretty much virtually touch them, and depending on how energetic that is too, um, it might be something you want to mess around with or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could totally see. A MacGyver thing where there's a, um, a like an energized coconut that you put your hand on the coconut and your hair stands up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to try it. I kind of want to try this. Like, how close, using your deflected method, how close can you get? Like, I, accuracy wise. So, I think some of the, I don't even remember what they were. Well, they were called electroscopes back in the day but but some of the first ways that humanity measured voltage was using a deflection uh method yeah. so if you have very known you know plates effectively that are suspended and and one of the reasons why they didn't vacuum is to remove any kind of extra uh interference you could calculate it right mm-hmm 
Well, so so if you have to calibrate the deflector, is that really something you can MacGyver in a warehouse? Hmm. Maybe we're getting a little too much in the weeds on this. I one. think we are getting into the weeds on it. But will it matter? Hmm. Well, one thing I guess we could do is uh, one thing to research is how do how do we know with really high accuracy the uh, the charge of an electron? Because if how like how do we know today? to whatever decimal place we know the charge of an electron, how yeah. could we convert that to something that is easily done on a desert island with paper clips and fishing line? <laughs> no, that, no, that's a good point. That's, that is a good way to think about it, too. Yeah, yeah, because then that, that gets you the fundamental towards whatever you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm-hmm. There's got to be some really elegant way of doing it and being super accurate, you know? Yeah, I'm thinking, like, at best, you have, like, a tape measure, right? Or, like, maybe not even that, but maybe using just, like, your body parts, like, knowing, like, the middle part of your knuckle is around an inch and, like, your forearm from, like, your wrist to your elbow is about a foot. Stuff like that that's, like, really rough. How close could you get? And I bet you there's like metric equivalents to that too, right? Like a fingernail is like <laughs> a 10 metric millimeters maybe. So. Oh, a metric knuckle. Sorry. A met metric knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a cool question to ask. How would you go about that? That you know, that would actually be a really fun question to ask um at a at a college. Just go to a find a find a classroom and ask the, ask a bunch of students that and have them just Try to brutalize it. I want to ask that on the next my next interview. I interview an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> I am not saying that on this podcast, Awesome Blossom. I read that too. I was like, yeah, well, maybe not now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'll say we'll save this next topic for next week. Yeah. Maybe you know uh, I'd love to maybe uh, maybe there'd be some discussion in the uh, Slack channel. Actually, this would be really fun for the whole Slack channel to come together and say like, how would we build a voltage detector? Yeah, no measurement. Like, how close can you? Yeah. Well, yeah, how close can you get using yeah. just what's all you know the clothes on your back and maybe a tape measure? Because yeah. because uh, it has to have chewing gum in it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, because MacGyver always did that. See, the problem with the deflection is that I don't think like a tape measure probably isn't sensitive enough or, or I, it's sensitive enough to you, you to be able to de detect deflection, but I don't know the forces required to move them apart far enough. Like what, what kind of resolution would you be looking at if you have yeah. like a tape measure that shows 16th of an inch, right? Well, it was like when we were talking about my first idea, which was just use an arc, but it's like, you were like 3,000 volts is a millimeter. And I'm like, that's your resolution. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because in three, like, from 50 volts, we're talking DC, 50 volts down, generally safe is you have dry fingers, generally safe. Yeah. And so you have 3,000 to 50 volts of like, unknown region. <laughs> that's why, like, that I arc. love the arc idea, but the problem is like, 
by the time you can even get to the point where you can visualize it with your eye, you you like you want to be far away. <laughs> like yeah. that it, yeah. Hmm. What is it? Oh, okay. well, so if you could figure out a you could use the arc if you could the problem with the arc is I don't think you could accurately measure the arc with simple tools. Like you would need like a micrometer to mm -hmm. measure that arc. Right. Because what you could do is take the two pieces of wire, slowly bring them together controlled. Right. Right? And then the moment you detect current, so you can have like a light bulb, right? In 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 series. The moment the light bulb starts to do anything, I mean, we're assuming that it will, it will, it will emit photons that you can detect at any current. You can, you would probably make that and then make that measurement of uh, distance. And then you would know your, your voltage. Yeah, you'd um, have to define what an arc means. Yeah. Actually, that's a good point. I don't know. To me, it's like when it, it photons off into your eyeballs, right? <laughs> right, right. When you can um, see it. See it. But is it like a, or is it like leakage current above a certain, because it's probably not, I'm going to bet you an arc is not uh, instantaneous. It probably has a ramp. Yeah, yeah. Like, it has like, to I ionize bet you the I, air. I, and, when you get really close, yeah, I, like electrons are being stripped across and right, pulled across. Ripping them off. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and at the questions. kind of distances we're talking about, it's probably incredibly minor what's actually happening, right? It, yeah. At that point, you'd have to have precision stuff just to find it. Yeah. Hmm. It definitely would tell you how dangerous it would be, depending on how energetic it was. But that's about it, I think. Mm -hmm. This raised way too many. This question raised more questions than we answered. Well, that's how it goes on the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. I have I have one other wait. Okay. If you have a bucket of water, right? And okay. and you pour the water in a laminar flow, assuming you can get laminar flow adjacent to the voltage source, it will curve the water. It will actually attract the water. And then if you do it from a high enough source, you could measure how far the curved water uh, was on just the sand or the ground or whatever. And that would allow you the resolution because if you go higher up, you could see where it falls on the ground and then back calculate that. That might be the best way to do it. Yeah, because then, because then your your scale is kind of arbitrary. Uh, if if you like, let's assume that you could move the voltage source up like ten feet up. How much the water would curve over that could, or you could move yeah. it down and get closer. Yeah, that might be the yeah, best yeah. way of doing it. Hmm. This is when you say, "Take it easy." Oh yeah, take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading and listening to our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or a way to MacGyver a multimeter, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or emails at podcastmacfab.com. And check out the Slack channel, which everyone's going to be talking about this this uh, topic uh, in the Slack channel. It is macfab.com slash Slack or come hang out with us every Tuesday at 6 o'clock p.m. 
on Twitch as twitch.tv slash macrofab.